0: Today's episode of Shakespeare Unbard discusses Titus Adronicus, a play that deals in adult themes. Viewer discretion is advised. This is Shakespeare Unbard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, a slasher film 400 years before there were slasher films, it's Titus Adronicus. Hail Rome, victorious! Vengeance is in my heart. Death in my hand. Blood and revenge are hammering in my head. Brothers, help convey her hence away, and with my sword I'll keep this door safe. Follow my lord, I'll bring her. My it. lord, you pass not here. What, villain boy? Pass me my way in Rome. When well, you had a long day, your left hand chopped off, your sons murdered, your daughter raped, her tongue cut out, both her hands chopped off. Well, the last thing you want to do is cook. You know what I mean? <laughs> Unless, of course, you cook the rapist and serve him to his mother at the dinner party! <laughs> okay, as always, we're gonna give you a summary of this play. Don't worry, it's not gonna be that long. This is Titus Adronicus in one minute. Let's start the timer and go. All is rotten in the state of Rome. The emperor is dead, and his sons Saturnius and Bassianus are fighting for the throne, but the people want the hero Titus Adronicus. Titus refuses and supports Saturnius, who was elected, and pays the favor by trying to marry Titus's daughter, Lavinia, not because he loves her, but because she's the troth to Bassianus. Titus' son side with Bassianus, and Titus kills one of them for their disrespect. Saturnius, meanwhile, changes his mind and marries Tamora, the queen of the Goths, who hates Titus because he killed her son. Tamora and her two sons plot revenge, and all of that is just scene one. Tamora is having an affair with Aaron and Mora who helps her plot revenge. Tamora's sons kill Bassianus rape Lavinia and cut off her hands and tongue. Titus's sons are framed for Bassianus' murder and sentenced to death, but Aaron tells Titus that his sons will be spared if he chops off his own hand. Titus does, only to learn that his sons have already been executed. Lavinia writes the name of her attackers in the dirt, and Titus plots revenge as Aaron plots to save the baby he's had with Tamora. Aaron is captured, the revenge plot is revealed. Titus kills Tamora's sons and feeds them to her during a feast. Titus kills Tamora, Saturnius kills Titus, Titus's sons kill Saturnius, and Aaron is buried chest deep and left to die. Oh, and someone else becomes Emperor of Rome, but don't worry about who it is, it's not really important. The first issue that always needs to be addressed when discussing Titus Adronicus by William Shakespeare is whether Titus Adronicus was really written by William Shakespeare. Yes, yes, we had this discussion with Henry VI Part I, but Titus has a bigger problem than just being a weak play. Not listed in any of the quattros published while Shakespeare was alive, Titus didn't appear until the first folio in 1623. Within 50 years, some clever wag was questioning its authorship, and the game has gone on ever since. People much smarter than me have analyzed the text for meter and words, and compared this to Shakespeare's other work. There is some logic to this, and Shakespeare was an artist, and all artists have their aesthetic quirks. The Russian writer, Sergei Dovlatov, has a mania for never using the same word in a sentence twice. As for me, I can't stand adverbs, and I really hate the word got. Got. The people who have compared Titus to Shakespeare's other work have all come to a variety of conclusions, but, as with all the people who routinely question Shakespeare's identity, the jury's still out, and until they return, we're all stuck with Titus Adronicus. This, I suspect, is entirely the problem. Like Henry VI Part I, which many a critic has tried to disown on behalf of poor Shakespeare, many would like to see Titus Adronicus expunged just so we can all stop having to endure the sight of Lavinia carrying her father's hand in her teeth. Popular in its day, Titus was avoided for centuries because of its distasteful nature. Writing of Cymbeline in 1896, George Bernard Shaw wrote that were it not for the play's heroine Imogen, Cymbeline would, quote, have as much chance as being revived as Titus Adronicus, end quote. Shaw had no patience for Titus, and neither did any of his contemporaries. But the play has enjoyed a renaissance in the last half century. Part of this sudden appeal, I suspect, is Shakespeare fatigue, a phenomenon which afflicts all theatre people who were raised on a steady diet of Hamlet, King Lear, and Romeo and Juliet. One gets exhausted by the classics, no matter how grand they may be, and there is always the hope that a play like Titus Adronicus will suddenly be seen as a monster ahead of its time. After all, if Shakespeare did write it, then surely it must have some worth, or so the theory goes. Given the way we have idolized the bard, it's hard for theater people, practitioner, and scholar alike to simply accept that Will was capable of writing a bad play. God makes mistakes, but we don't like to admit it because every god is a reflection of its disciples. We have chosen to worship William Shakespeare, so surely even a play as grotesque as Titus Andronicus must be worth our time. I'm going to show my cards now. I do think Titus Andronicus is worth our time to a point. Structurally, Titus Adronicus is a poor play, but stylistically, it really has a voice that is entirely distinct. Horror is not a popular genre for theater, or for Shakespeare for that matter, but he tackles it in Titus Adronicus, and if taken from this perspective, Titus suddenly becomes a show far more unique than its detractors might think. The reason why people have determined that the voice isn't Shakespeare's is because, well, it isn't. He was trying on a different style, the way someone else might slip on a new cloak. On the other hand, Titus Adronicus might not be as different as we think. It was written around the same time as Richard III, and both plays have a horror film element to them. Is Richard III so different from the mass murderer of your favorite slasher film? Both Titus and Richard III feature anti-heroes, violence, rebellion, and murder. The difference is that with Richard III, Shakespeare had history to draw from. Depending on where you fall in the debate regarding Titus's source material, it may be one of the few plays Shakespeare invented on his own. If he did borrow from someone, it's mostly the Romans, who in turn stole everything from the Greeks. Any reading of their myths will reveal a litany of heinous crimes, so while Titus Adronicus is gruesome, it at least can brag that content was dictating form. Still, there's no denying that the lamentable tragedy of Titus Adronicus has a lamentable plot, which was Shakespeare's great weakness, especially when he didn't have a history book to consult. With Titus Adronicus, he may have only thrown in the murder and bloodshed because, as a young playwright, he was at a loss for something else to do. I usually rail and brawl against all those Shakespearean productions that change the time period and interpolate directorial inventions, but I almost think that's the only thing that can make Titus Adronicus a little more palatable. I've seen it played as a straight tragedy, and it almost always falls flat. The play seems best suited for some post-apocalyptic hellscape where humanity has broken down into warring tribes. It certainly fails as historical fiction, for it takes place in no certain time period, and the Romans and Titus bear little similarity to those of Coriolanus or Julius Caesar, which are better suited to the periods in which they are set. The central problem is Titus himself, who is not good enough to be a hero or bad enough to be a compelling anti-hero. Fortunately, he's complicated and full of contradictions, but I fear this ends up disrupting the drama rather than enhancing it. Like the later King Lear, Titus Adronicus opens with the title character, who makes a decision with a consequence that ripples throughout the rest of the play. Here it is actually two decisions. The first is that Titus orders the death of Tamora's son, the second is when he refuses the crown and supports Saturnius. Both decisions doom him. When Lear makes his fateful decision to shun Cordelia, it is because of pride. This is the tragedy. Like Oedipus Rex, the thing that makes Lear great also dooms him. Titus, on the other hand, lacks a single distinguishing feature. When he kills Tamora's son, he is vengeful. When he kills his own son a moment later, it's because he's been quick to anger. He shows humility when he turns down the crown, but ambition when he allows his daughter to be married to Saturnius. He demonstrates sacrifice when he cuts off his own hand to save his sons, but sadism when he murders Lavinia at the end of the play. One can pity his children, but Titus himself is such a cipher that at times he defies explanation. Lear and Hamlet always do things because it's in their nature, Titus seems to act simply because the playwright told him to. I'd argue that this might be one of the things that fills us with distaste, because while the violence of Titus may be grotesque, other plays are just as violent and yet maintain their popularity. The rape and murder of Macduff's wife and son, the murder of Cordelia, the sexual assaults featured in Measure for Measure in All's Well That Ends Well, the incest in Pericles, all these events make us cringe. Yet we forgive them because they emerge from characters far more relatable than Titus. The murder of Macduff's wife and children serve a logical purpose, much like that of the two princes in Richard III. The violence of Titus Andronicus, on the other hand, is gratuitous, because it appears to come out of nowhere. Much like a modern horror film, Shakespeare's only goal appears to be to shock and scare. The comparison to a horror film is apt. Titus Andronicus is nothing short of a 16th century slasher film. The only difference is that in slasher films, there's usually only one killer killing everybody, while in Titus, it's the killers that are threatening to take over the world. Horror films, of course, allow us to explore our darkest fears. They also have a morality that pleases us. It is by now a well-known cliche that the innocent virginal girl will almost always escape destruction. She usually is the one who defeats the killer in the end. In Titus, the innocents are Lucius, Marcus Adronicus, and Young Lucius. These three are the Greek chorus of the play, who can only react in horror to what is happening around them. Like the virginal heroine of Friday the 13th and other films of its kind, the heroes of Titus are the ones who must pick up the pieces once the killer, or rather the killers, have been dispatched. The villains of Titus rescue it from being completely intolerable. As is so often the case, they are more fun than the heroes, and their gruesome crimes are punished in fitting ways. Tamara is not a spectacular villain, but she is a good one because Shakespeare did her the courtesy of giving her a compelling motivation. If Titus has any merits, it's that it, like all revenge stories, inherently discusses the concept of personal retribution versus justice in a court of law. Tamara's son has been slain by her enemies. She along with Eren and her two demon sons enact a revenge that dares to improve on the concept of an eye for an eye. In Tamara's world, you take an eye, she'll rape your daughter, mutilate her, cut off your hand, kill your sons, and drive you insane. I like Tamara's character, but I always wish she had more to do. She disappears for long stretches of time, especially during that nine-month lag when she's having Aaron's child. Now, I'd argue the baby is the most inspired plot point in the show, although it does wreak havoc with the show's timeline. Since we can suppose that Saturnius wouldn't have married Tamara if she was visibly pregnant, we have to guess that a minimum of five or six months have passed between her marriage to him in Act 1 and the arrival of the baby in the second scene of Act 4. Given that no one mentions the pregnancy, one has to suppose that she didn't start showing until after her appearance in Act 2, Scene 3. The problem with this is that the two subsequent scenes clearly happen within a few days of each other, which means the next two scenes have to take place weeks or months later. Since one of these scenes is where Lavinia finally identifies her attackers, it implies that it took them months to hit upon the idea of having her write out the names using a stick in the dirt. Now, this strains credulity to me, and is another major plot problem that no production I've seen has ever attempted to solve. Nonetheless, the arrival of the baby does liven the story up a bit, because it shows us that while Tamora and her family are savages, the wicked Aaron is actually the most human of them all. Aaron's a Moor, remember, so the baby is both a mixed-race child and clear proof that Tamora cheated on Saturnius. The nurse calls it, quote, a joyless, dismal, black, and sorrowful issue, that is, as loathsome as a toad, end quote, to which Aaron responds with a plea for mercy. Zounds, Yahoo! Is black so base a hue? Sweet blows. You are a beauteous blossom, sure. Keep in mind that in the previous scene, Aaron has been the chief plotter of the crimes against Titus's family, yet confronted with his child, he draws his sword and suddenly shows more loyalty to his new son. Than Titus show to the one he killed at the beginning of the play. Stay, murderous villains. Will you kill your brother? Now, by the burning tapers of the sky that shone so brightly when this boy was got, he dies upon my scimitar's sharp point that touches this my firstborn son and heir. Depending on how it is played, is it possible to see Aaron as a victim? Like Edmund in King Lear, Aaron is oppressed by the conventions of the world in which he lives. In King Lear, remember, Edmund is illegitimate, while in Titus, Aaron is a black man in a white man's world. Both Aaron and Edmund work to improve their station by seducing the wife of their overlord, but Edmund repents in the end, while Aaron does not, and his final lines are an act of defiance. Oh, why should wrath be mute and fury dumb? I am no baby, I, that with base prayers I should repent the evils I have done. Ten thousand worse than ever yet I did would I perform if I might have my will. If one good deed in all my life I did, I do repent it from my very soul." Aaron has also given himself up rather than see his baby hanged. Nothing is said of the baby's fate, but the Romans promised to let it live, and I like to think that they did. But this is the nihilistic world of Titus Adronicus we're talking about, and it's just as likely they threw it into a pit. Still, it would give another slimmer of hope to what is essentially a hopeless tale. Imagine if the son of Aaron and Tamara, two of the cruelest people in all of Shakespeare, grew up to be a man of worth. In the end, newcomers to Shakespeare might want to avoid Titus Adronicus, and if you're indulging in a Shakespeare marathon, you may want to put this towards the bottom of the list. On the other hand, people continue to examine Titus, from its authorship to its theatrical worth, and you may discover you have something unique to add to the conversation. What I'm saying is, I do not come to praise Titus Adronicus, but I'm not quite ready to bury him either. I'm not the only one who feels this way, and perhaps this is the most intriguing thing that can be said about this brutal and bloody play. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. Hail, Rome, victorious! Give us the proudest prisoner of the Goths, that we may sacrifice his flesh. Victorious Titus, spare my firstborn son! Religiously, they ask a sacrifice. I'll find a day to massacre them all. There's really only one version of Titus worth talking about, and that's the 1999 film directed by Julie Taymor and starring Anthony Hopkins in the title role. The film was a bomb when it first came out, but it's gained a cult following in the years since, at least among theater people who are the only people I know. Tamor, who is known for infusing everything she does with a certain visual flair, is the force behind the stage musical The Lion King, and Titus came out when she was riding high on that show's thunderous success. She had money to play with, and you can't say she didn't build herself a playground. As a film, Titus is a bit of a wild visual ride, which always gives you something to look at, even if Tamor can't quite escape the trappings of Shakespeare's play. She's a little audacious in her interpretation, interpolating a modern-day boy who was transported to the world of Titus Adronicus and serves as a sort of silent Greek chorus. Once the boy gets to ancient Rome, though, the movie follows the script, and Taymor Hambly allows the cast to do all the vile things that Shakespeare wants them to do. The actors are having fun, as actors tend to do, with top marks going to Anthony Hopkins and Jessica Lange, who is a pretty sultry, to- who is a pretty sultry Tamara. For some reason... Every time I see a production of Titus Adronicus, the actors playing Chiron and Demetrius play them as manic characters who are bouncing off the walls. They're always played as being unhinged and slightly insane. Tamor allows her actors to follow this pattern, and frankly, it's a little annoying. I don't love this production. I don't think Tamor captures the horror film atmosphere of Titus, and she's a little too in love with her own visuals. But at the same time, I kind of like that this film exists. Major Hollywood films of Shakespeare's work aren't exactly common things, so whenever one comes along, its very existence is always a bit of a minor triumph. If you're going to watch one production of Titus Adronicus, it might as well be this one. There are others, the BBC has their versions, and you can find others online, but this one is by far the most interesting, and it's pretty easy to separate Tamor from Shakespeare, meaning you'll be able to tell the difference between when you're watching Shakespeare's play and when you're watching Tamor's movie. This is actually a pretty important feature, since we live in a world where Shakespeare is altered so often that if you hate something, it's hard to know if you should hurl those rotten tomatoes at Shakespeare or the person who adapted him. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, Love's Labor's Lost, the comedy that everyone keeps trying to change into a musical. If you want to find links to the things I've discussed, check out the show page at www.joelfishpain.net slash and Bard. And hey, while you're there, why not take a look at all the other things I do with my time? You can even find info about my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a work of historical fiction about two eight-foot-tall women struggling to survive in a world too small to contain them. It's available now from St. Martin's Press. Shakespeare factors into the plot of that book, too, specifically Henry V. But you'll have to wait till we get to that episode to find out exactly how. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. Seven plays down, 31 to go. This was thy daughter. He that wounded her hurt me more than had he killed me dead. Will Shakespeare as a play let's go and (sighs) cough through it.